Wow, this is also 2.0. I tried preaching last Sunday, but the Holy Spirit came so powerfully, it just wasn't possible. So we'll have a second try today. It's great to be here, and especially on this day. And so before I show you a brief video clip, somehow this March of Life conference is something that's really been with us to this day, because all these topics, Tabernacle, Tent of Meeting, that's been with us, and I want to keep following up on that. But before I start, I would like to show you a video. But before I do that, I have feel I should pray for certain people. And during worship, I felt there were some people here who were still caught in that valley of the shadow of death. Some of you either here in person or those on, who are joining us on TV, you are really uh, threatened by fears, by thoughts of death, and they have no particular reason, just lies. And I would like to pray for you so this would leave you, because the Word of God says that if we take authority, then these things have to flee. And mainly, the Lord is leading us through these things. I don't know for whom this is true. Can you wave at me if this is true for you? Just raise your hand so I can pray. So you don't have to come forward. Just keep your hand up and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for each one here who's just raised their hand. And I break now the spirit of death, of the shadow of death over you. I break the power of lies that are over you, especially at night fears about deadly diseases and I break that over you in the name of Jesus and I cast out this dark cloud over your life and now say I receive it in the name of Jesus and church let's say this together I receive it in the name of Jesus and so let's give a big hand to Jesus and so secondly I wanted to show you this video clip I am just so thrilled with that because it's about the conference and also about the things that were said and so it has been quoted a lot recently but it really is something special if Josh Reinstein gets up he's the director of Christian Allies Caucus at the Knesset and he says as Jews we've been waiting for something like this for the past 2,000 years or Shaya Ben Yehuda they're not fanatics they're serious people. He's the director of international relations at Yad Vashem. And he's a real heavy there. And if he says, you are building the tabernacle here, the place for God's dwelling, you are bringing God's presence to earth, that makes me listen up. Because, you know, what are they saying? I mean, we can hardly believe it if others say that. Or maybe Ari Itama, who said that he's a Holocaust survivor of the Exodus, you know. He said, we need what you are doing. We need your voice. You are the army of light and of love. You've got a holy calling, and you stand for life, and I am your soldier. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And so we've made a brief video summary of the conference, and we've got such wonderful people. Matthias, not Martin, Matthias Rowley, very officially. If I speak about him from the stage, it's Matthias Rowley. He's doing such an amazing work, and he has just taken two or three days to create this video uh, here, and Matthias Rowley will present this uh, video to you. So, Matze, just go ahead. We have to understand that we're not just remembering something that happened 70 years ago. We are fighting in our daily lives against this darkness today. 
This darkness is spreading across Europe like it did in the 1930s. It's the same darkness. It's this anti-Semitism, yet spreads like a virus. But today, I saw the light, the dancing and the singing, the joy in everyone's heart when they heard about Jerusalem. And that's why this organization is so important. We have been waiting for thousands of years for this movement to grow and become a movement. Today, we are now united in spreading the light. By spreading the light, you can bring the light to all your fellow citizens. You just need to stand up. You have to do. The challenge of all of us is to continue to make a meaningful remembrance. And what you are doing is exactly bringing the presence of the Lord to the universe. Thank you for all what you are doing, because if we want to have the presence of the Lord on earth, we have to speak the truth. We have to fight anti-Semitism and we have to fight all kinds of hatred. So we've just returned from Strasbourg, where yesterday we had a day with about 60 pastors who want to have a March of Life there. They're thinking about how to bring the March of Life to France. So just now we are really seeing an explosion of Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. I heard that this year there was an anti-Semitic attack in Strasbourg again. And tomorrow we'll be going to Finland, where we'll spend a whole week. In all, my book was translated into Finnish, and we'll release it there, and we'll be in many churches, spend time with pastors there, and also try to keep spreading the March of Life movement there. But my friends, the center is not our activities, but the center is something different, and this is what I want to speak about, because these words were very impressive. What happens when heaven touches earth? What happens when the presence of God comes down, and what are the prerequisites for that to happen. And so, 
ein besonderes Rezept hat. If you want to find a special recipe, you know, for all those who are chefs among us or who know how to cook well, you know you always want to have recipes. And you try to copy something, you try to emulate someone, you try to do something special. But the best thing is to go straight to the source where this was created and how did this food, this recipe come to be. And today I want to tell you how this all came about, not how the movement came about. I spoke a lot about that already. But what is actually the recipe for heaven to, heaven to touch earth? What do we have to do so the presence of God can come down? What do we have to do so something like this can happen? That such impressive statements as these can be made. You are building a place for the tabernacle of God, dwelling place for God here on earth, so God's presence can come. You know, it's almost shaming to hear that. But that's what the word of God says, and that's what the Lord wants to do. And so Psalm 29.9, that's a word. Everything in his temple cries holy or glory. So I'm speaking about heaven touching earth today. And another word from the New Testament is Revelation 21, 15 verse 8. Is the temple was filled with smoke and by the glory of his presence and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So that's just a glance into the future, into the coming again of Jesus. What will happen? God's glory will be there. And I think it's very good to have uh, the uh, parashat today, which was exactly on the building the tabernacle. So I think it's all fitting, and I believe the Lord wants to do something special today. And so this is what we are actually seeing, right? Last Sunday I tried to preach, but the presence of God came so powerfully that I couldn't even preach. Or the Holocaust survivors who saw the musical in Israel, they kept speaking about sensing how healing rivers of oil were physically uh, tangible how they touched him and healing took place. And my friends, what we're seeing over and over again when we talk to mayors, city presidents, Holocaust survivors, we simply share our story, the story of our city, or our personal family story. And people start weeping and the presence of God comes down. In one of my recent messages, I shared about a big service in Bogota, Colombia, and the chief rabbi was there, and we shared our story, and the glory of God came so powerfully that the services were changed with thousands of people there. And there were many, many stories. Many of you experienced that yourselves, whether it was in small or big encounters, in services, in events, or at marches of life. And the question is, what is the secret for God's presence to come down? How can we experience the atmosphere of heaven? And how does that happen? And the, Bible's, the Bible calls this atmosphere of heaven glory. And the first thing is, we know that the first dwelling place of God here on earth is the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And the tabernacle was this tent, tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the place of his presence. And that was filled with a pillar of cloud and with the glory of God. 
And so this tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was also the place of revelation, the place that God spoke about, a place where heaven and earth came together, and it was marked by the glory of God. We sang that many times, right? We know the song by Paul Wilbur and others, Kavod, Kavod, the glory of God, and means glory and riches. It also can mean a heaviness. It's like something coming down, uh, like a blanket covering us. And the Greek word is doxa. Revelation 21, verse 23. Many times we read in Revelation about this glory of God, and the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's not the Jerusalem of this time, but it speaks about eternity, the glory of God. And that's a place here. And in Revelation, it's called Jerusalem. It says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. So glory, my friends, that's the sphere of heaven. That is something of heaven that is tangible and visible here on earth. And when it happens, it's like in the last service, you know, I was just outside for a moment because we had finished the service and I came back and I thought everyone would have left, but it was like... Uh, Everyone was still there. It, I think for me it was the first service that I closed and nobody wanted to leave. It is something of the presence of God. You can feel it. And so the earth has an atmosphere and that's the air. And with its oxygen, it's necessary for life. You can't see it. But as soon as a breeze of wind is coming into a place, you can suddenly see it because things are moving and you can realize it's there. And in heaven, the atmosphere is the glory of God. It's his presence. And once the arm of God starts moving, this glory comes down. Not all of it, we couldn't stand it, but just a little portion, something tangible. Something of heaven that comes upon us that we can sense and the Lord is placing his placing it upon us, and it's like a foretaste of heaven which God gives us. Some call it anointing, others call it a visitation. And I call it heaven touching earth with his heavenly glory. There's a wonderful passage to that. If you've got a Bible with you, we can look at it for a moment. The, about the promises that are on his presence. And when his presence comes... Most of our problems actually are solved. When the Lord comes down with his presence, darkness is transformed into light. A wonderful text here, and I heard a great voice from the throne that spoke and said, Behold, the tabernacle of God, his presence is glory among men. So that's what you see, his presence. And he will, well, what will he do when his presence is there? First of all, he will dwell with them. He will be there. And that does not only start in the future at some point, but it's a promise every time he comes with his presence. And they will be his nation, and he himself will live with them. 
So this with him is Emmanuel. That's the God who says, I'll never leave you alone. I'll not let go of you. I am Emmanuel with you. So that's a promise of his presence. And then what we can see here in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear. He is the one who takes off our garments of mourning and gives us garments of joy. He wipes away our tears and he will pour out new joy. That's a mark of the presence of God. Peace, joy, and righteousness. And not a lack of peace and mourning and self-righteousness, right? But peace, joy, and righteousness. He will wipe away every tear of their face. Death will no longer be there, nor any suffering or screaming or pain. My friends, that's not something for the future, but every place that his presence can come down, wherever we open the door for him, where he can come into our lives. And where he, the one on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, and the beginning and the end. He is the one who created the universe. He is the last page of every chapter of your life. And then the book won't be finished yet, because he is also the judge. He's the redeemer. He's the one that we will stand before, you and me. And with your death, your life's not over yet. But that's the beginning of the new thing. So what we're living here, this is what we use to prepare eternity. Where and how we shall spend eternity. The way we live here determines how we will stand before the living God. He is the beginning and the end. I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. My friends, not only once everything's over, but here and now. And if you are thirsty for the fountain of life, for more, then he says, I will give you without cost. He who overcomes will inherit all this. That's the next promise. He has made you someone to overcome. An overcomer of the attacks of darkness, overcomer of sin, overcomer of darkness, overcoming everything that is against you. He is the one who overcomes, and you shall inherit that, and I will be his God, and he says to you, you will be my daughter, you will be my son. And he points at you and says, you are my son, my daughter. These are God's promises, his promises, and this happens in his presence. And this presence of God is not just a service when we say, wow, we feel really happy here. That's part of his presence. But his presence is when heaven touches earth, and we will have to see when does that happen, actually. And so Leslie preached here recently. I don't know whether she's listening today, but she's one of our staff in the March of Life House in Israel. And she said, you know, it doesn't matter which generation you're, you're part of, you're part of this. So turn to the person next to you and tell them you are part of this. First point. Well, I'm actually much uh, further than you are with your PowerPoint presentation. So, you know, first point. The tabernacle was designed by God himself. He created it and he planned it. 
So that's Exodus 25, 8 and 9. They shall build a sanctuary for me to dwell among them according to the design I showed you of the dwelling place with everything in it. So my friends, everything that's created in heaven is designed by God and it carries something of his very image. Creation is not just something that's been designed at a green table, but it's some, that's something that carries something of the presence of God. And man himself was made according to his image. So you carry something of the image of God. Everything designed in heaven shows something of his nature. The Ten Commandments are not just some commandments, but they were presented and created by the living God, and they show something of his nature. And also the tabernacle, the first dwelling place of God among men. The tabernacle. You know, for us this word sounds really old. We need to get used to it. But this place of God's presence. Just think about it. Compare it. Once you start reading the Bible, the first new words that we find, it's about the miracles of creation. In the beginning, God created uh, heaven and earth. So in, in German, it's nine words. But just think what we would write and construct in the beginning of a book, what we would have to research and everything. How many books we'd have to write on creation, on what God designed. But the creator of heaven and earth is the living God. He does it completely different. Because if you read about his dwelling place, he doesn't write just nine or ten words, but you know, he writes 50 chapters here in the Bible. 50 chapters in the books of Moses and the letter of Hebrews is about building and furnishing the, the, the uh, sanctuary, the priests, their garments, what they look like, the pomegranates, the belts at the hem of their garments. You know, things that I didn't know about when I read this for the first time. The sacrifices, the services. And it actually makes sense why it is this way. Because creation is simply a vessel of something that's much more crucial. Creation would be without life if it were not for the Spirit of God. It would be darkness and like a desert if the Spirit of God did not make it alive. You and me, we would just be a dead vessel and if it were not for the breath of God to breathe life into us. And even your nice modeling physical body would be of no consequences if it weren't for the Spirit of God in you. So it doesn't matter whether you've got lots of hair or little, whether you've got lots of wrinkles or not. It's that what's important is the Spirit of God in you. Hello? For God, it was the most important thing, the priority, a place for him to dwell, for his presence. So creation was just the vessel. But he needed a place for his presence, a center. You know, this place for his presence was the center of salvation, the center of his redemptive plan for humankind. So he built a place where heaven and earth would touch and meet. 
So you understand, this is not just a glorious service here, we're having a good time, have, feel well and happy. But God needs a place where he can come, where he can meet with people, because he wants it, he is longing for it, it's part of his redemptive purposes. And so the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was the very first dwelling place that the living God had built for himself. He didn't need any real estate manager. He didn't need to get credit with a bank, but God simply created and built. And we know that. Moses, while he was on the mountain for those 40 days, you all know the story, right? When the glory of God was made manifest on the mountain, it was described on the Mount of Sinai, where the cloud of his glory came and thunder and lightning and a sound of many trumpets. It was heard. So he didn't just receive the tablets for the commandments, but he received precise instructions for this unique building. And God entrusted it to Moses, and within one year, they constructed the tabernacle. And the Lord showed his pleasure. And God filled the tent of meeting with his glory. That's what you can read up here. And then, for 500 years, all of the different ministries were established. The priestly family through Aaron, and then the Kohens, that was the priestly family, and they worshipped. They sacrificed, and the God presence of God came down. So that was the place of his revelation. In Exodus 25, God says, I will come and speak to you there. It was called the Tent of Meeting, therefore. And you know, when you look at the names, you know what happens there. Tent of meeting. 144 times it's called that in the Bible because God is desiring fellowship with man. And so if there is something in you that says, oh, you have to work and do everything, God doesn't come, then he runs away from you, he shuns you, and there's a huge iron gate in front of your eyes and you can't get through. That's not God's truth. So God is desiring you. He wants to have fellowship with you. And unless he was desiring to be with you, have fellowship with you, he wouldn't have thought of, of, of this whole redemptive purpose and plan. He'd have never sent his son. In the word of God we read that all day he has reached out his hands for you. And if there's an emptiness in you, a loneliness, and you feel a lack in everything, I want you to know this living God has been reaching out his hands for you all day because he loves you. And this tent of meeting here has its prophetic fulfillment in Jesus. And there's a unique prophetic significance in that. When I was a young believer, I received a book from someone. I think I was a believer, had been a believer for one or two years, and I've got it on my shelf ever since then. In this book, it's, I, you can read up about all those materials that the tabernacle was made up of. And it's amazing to see that all materials was always something that pointed to Messiah. Every single one pointed to the coming of Messiah, his redemption, his resurrection. And that's what Jesus spoke about. Do you, re you realize that? Jesus himself said that, John 5, 35, he says, Moses 
spoke about me or wrote about me. Well, just read Torah, because you should be able to read about Jesus there. You know, and then on the other hand, in Luke 24, he, he says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what it was written in the scriptures about him. So that's important, right? I've got a really old book at home by Spurgeon. You know Spurgeon? He's a revivalist. It's called Christ in the Old Testament. So everything points to the coming of Messiah and also in the tabernacle here. So first point is the tabernacle was designed by God. So when God designs something, he is not negligent, okay? But in everything, he is highly excellent and diligent. Second point. The tabernacle is the pleasant place for God's presence comes to earth through people who do the work of God. Okay? So the one thing is, we can be very spiritual. And if we were to stop there, we would simply have to find the most anointed service in Germany with the most anointed uh, worship leaders, LED screens, best musicians. I go there and that takes me into the presence of God. Then the only thing it would take to me is for me is to go to Bethel or where else you can run today. I would only have to go there to encounter God. I sit down and say, wow, God, now I'm in your presence. But who of you realizes it doesn't quite work that way? Because the presence of God, the tabernacle, comes down to earth through people who do the works of God. So God is always looking for people who actually put his plans into action. God has got plans for your life, very detailed plans, just as exact and detailed as his plans for the tabernacle were. And his plans for your personal life are just as glorious. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Everyone can actually pay attention to God's plans and enter into it and be online with what God has prepared for them. He had plans for Moses. And we know Moses, actually, everything turned out differently. He became a murderer. He hid in the desert for 40 years. But God finally got him. And also, if you feel you've been in the desert for 40 years, if you are willing, God will get you. God's after you. Hallelujah. And just the same way, It was for David. He could have stayed in bitterness because Saul was after him. He even threw a spear at him. And he was already gathering all rebels and then God got him and said, don't you even dare cutting off a fringe of his garment. Don't you dare touch the anointed one. And you know, we've collected quite a number of corners of garments that we'd cut off. Some people here are garment corner collectors. Well, maybe we need to take them to the cross because we only harm ourselves. So God's got plans for your life. But praise the Lord for David. In his greatest points of crisis, he understood, I want to do what God wants me to do. Solomon, the prophets, the disciples, even a Martha who was full of doubt. 
when Lazarus was already rotting in his grave, was smelling, when he was in the cave, nobody wanted to enter the cave. She said, Lord, he's smelling already. And inside she said, Jesus, he, Jesus, he's really, he's, he's really strange to say that. So he had no faith whatsoever. But Jesus comes to her and says to her, didn't I tell you, when you believe, you will see the presence of God? So God always seeks people who will do his will. All it takes is our unconditional yes. And my friends, that's the point. It only takes our hineni, our Lord, here I am. So God can only use us or make use of us when we are deeply rooted in his plans. When through faith we do his works. Not our own works, of course. Sure. Because many times we are good in doing our works for God. We are doing our best for him. But actually we need to be rooted in his will. And that's what happens when he calls us to the place where his presence dwells. When we are where his presence is. And I've got some news for you that you might actually not be so happy about. Sometimes these places can be quite strange. Because we would like to have them rather golden or plush or comfortable. You know, there's a kind of Christian Baroque. Everything in birch wood or maybe some candles or pine. We feel unhappy with that. No, that's... Of course, we, we should have pretty surroundings. But the places where he takes us, the places of his presence, might be quite different to what we imagine. For instance, the tent of meeting was not somewhere, you know, in the center of a honeypot, but it was in the middle of the desert, the wilderness. Or James on his Jacob on his way to to uh, the desert. He's uh, fleeing to Haran, and it's the story of the ladder up to heaven. Um, he wakes up and and he sees heaven and earth touching, and he says, "Behold, the Lord is dwelling in this place, and I didn't know." That's Genesis 28, you know. You know, just imagine he hadn't taken a stone for a pillow. That wasn't quite comfortable, was it? And he says, this is nothing else but the house of God, and this is the gate to heaven. And so the places of his presence might not be quite so comfortable. It's not the places that we might necessarily choose. Or when Jesus was uh, fasting, the Spirit of God had led him to the wilderness and he was attacked by demons and Satan and he resisted them in authority with the Word of God. And then afterwards we read, angels came to minister to him. So we'd rather forego the first part, right? We want to go straight to the ministering part. Well, when I think back how the Lord led us to this city here to start building church, the Lord asked us to go to Belarus to start the different kinds of ministry. We did some crazy things. There was hardly ever a time that I thought, oh wow, my heart is, is so glorious here, so wonderful. But usually the Lord started working in places where he tested my obedience. 
I still remember we prayed in the city here. We were students at the university. We said, Lord, you can do anything with us. And the Lord looked at us and said, really? Are you really serious? Lord, you can do anything with us. And the Lord said, okay, well, let's start in a little thing here. Are you willing to stay here for 10 years in Tübingen? Oh, well, Lord, our plans are quite different. We're students. Students can do whatever they want. We can travel wherever we want. We can go to places. We've got all options open. Oh, we had lots of options. But the Lord asked us, are you willing to stay here for 10 years? Do you want to play kindergarten or do you want to really give your lives to me? And I still remember we trembled and we said, God, if you want us 10 years. And he was just smiling. By now we've been here for how long? 100 years? 40, 50 years? Well, whatever. The Lord just smiled at us. You know, he wants us to be rooted in his plans and ideas. And to be willing to truly lay down our own lives and desires before him. And sometimes these can be places that we wouldn't necessarily choose ourselves. And often it's that way. And my friends, there's a Jewish concept. And when you go to Israel, you can hear that all over the place. That idea is, is uh, repairing the world with good works. And I'm sure you've heard about this. Many Christians, especially if we're really spiritual, we are kind of wrinkling our nose and saying, ah, no, we'll live by faith. We don't need works. You know, We know what Luther said. But actually, James also says in James 2, verse 14, he says that faith without works is dead. So somehow, God seems to measure us according to the things we do. So it's not just something mythical, spiritual, but God actually looks at what we do. Revelation 3, verse 8 is, Behold, I know your works. Revelation 3:15, I know your works. So obviously, God knows our works. Revelation 14, verse 13. It's an impressive picture, you know. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, right. And then he says, the Spirit says they rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Did you realize that? That once you are with the Lord, you are not just in some bubble, but actually your works shall follow you. What you have done by faith, what you've done by obedience, what you've done because of your love to the Lord, the works won't save us, but they will follow us. So we are made, that's what the word of God says, in order to live in the works prepared for us. Ephesians 2 verse 10. It's a very nice verse, verse 10. For we are his creation, in Christ Jesus, made in order to lead a comfortable life and to get by as best as we can in our cell group and to be left in peace so maybe I can just about make it into heaven. Is that what it says here? No. But many times we live like that, right? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God, listen, yeah? So not just anything, but the works that God 
has prepared in advance for us to do. So we should live in them. So in the morning I wake up and I say, Lord, I want this to be a day of your presence. I pray and say, God, what is it that you have prepared? I want to live in your ways, maybe different to what my ideas are, my what my physical body tells me, my soul, my emotions tell me, maybe different to what my family, my parents, my children might tell me, maybe completely different, but Lord, I want to hear what is your works. So we are created to do the good works created in Christ Jesus, to do the good works which God prepared for us. And many times in our lives, this is rather mixed. Let's be honest. So many times, this is mixed with our own works. You know, we are champions in painting our own works, writing God on it, and, and it's what we want. We are artists in that. We are champions in getting what we want to have. We do everything, and then we just want to have a label there, this is of God. Well, it will be proven. Not necessarily everything. Because where our hearts, our own ways are in it, we do not walk in His works that He prepared for us. No matter, even in good things we do, in our marriages, in our families, jobs, callings, whatever we do, even the Christian things or church, we've got so many ideas. So many attitudes, so many things how God should do things, was supposed to do things, or what he shouldn't do. Our experience of the past 30 years, what worked out, what didn't. There's so many things. And somehow, we actually prepend, prevent God truly from coming. Because he's not a ghost, right? He's not like a gin, gin from a bottle, you know, like some of you know, Genie. That was even before Netflix. Forget about Netflix. That was a series, okay? Well, okay, it was a Genie from a bottle. I wasn't a Christian then. She went like this and then went click, you know, anyway. Afterwards, I um, threw it out of my life, but anyway. <laughs> But that's not how the Lord is when he comes with his friend in his presence. Sometimes he winks at us and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he wants to and sometimes not. When does he come? Well, as I promised, as I promised, I would tell you this recipe, which is so complicated, but yet found in the Bible. And it's only complicated because many times we don't want it. So God asked Moses to build the tabernacle, right? And first we read, because he was God's friend, there was no one who ever was such a friend of God as Moses. God could tr was able to trust him. And he did everything that he asked of him. Just imagine, 40 days waiting for the Lord, then he smashed the tablets and went back straight back up the mountain to spend another 40 days with him. So he did everything the Lord asked of him. But then he says something else. We read that in uh, Numbers 12, verse 3, because he was the most humble man on earth. That's why God was able to trust him. And let's stop there for a moment. Because sometimes we are so quick, which is good, to work through our family history, family tree, and we should do that. God's been speaking about that. 
But sometimes we kind of lose sight of one thing. Sometimes we don't consider one thing. One of the main strongholds here in our nation, and let every man look to their own nation, right? Just our nations, okay? Is the superiority or the stronghold of pride. And my friends, that's one of the main strongholds that needs to fall before God's presence is able to fall. And unless this pride is thrown out of our lives, we'll never be able to receive the presence and promises of God. And suddenly I understand something. Our March of Life conferences, just like other times, but especially marked here at the March of Life conference, is a place of brokenness and repentance and humbling ourselves. And things get, are very clear then. We see that. And we say, oh, we are so sorry. And we see the Holocaust, the Shoah. And we honor Jewish life. But what happens actually is that we have a broken and humble spirit at those times. And God's presence is just drawn to a humble spirit. He comes immediately. We don't do much. We dance. We do what we do in, in our usual services. It's not even that we preach the gospel and we've been criticized for that, right? We don't evangelize. We just want to preach reconciliation. We want to share those things. We live the gospel, especially at those March of Life conferences. And God's glory comes down. You know, we need to tear down those strongholds in our lives. The main stronghold is always this pride. And let me prove this to you, because as soon as we hear that word, it's like the, the shutters are closing in our lives. Oh no, this again, you know, we've done that, been there, done that. These are the shutters that are closing. Immediately we want to play down. And we fall asleep like some people here have closed their eyes and like doze off here. My friends, it's so easy for us to fend this off, to try and defend ourselves or respond in a negative way. It is so hard for us to be appreciative, but as soon as we express appreciation, for instance, like we saw it at the conference, immediately the presence of God comes down. You know, pride is something birthed out of our own strength, our own achievement to do, to want to do the works of God in our own strength. And we think we could somehow do this and, and be successful, but the more we do that, the more we realize that our legs grow heavier and heavier and things get more and more difficult. Pride is idolatry. Because we actually exalt our own abilities and put them on the throne. And then we need to be satisfied by what we do and we only feel well when we get recognition and success. And when I speak about this, I realize in my spirit and I sense things becoming very quiet here. But we have to talk about these points because you see we've got the living proof. The glory of God is attracted, the presence of God is attracted once he finds a humble and contrite spirit. And my friends, that my, doesn't mean humiliated, but humble. 
So the greatest darkness is transformed into light by such a humble spirit. And that's really true. And why? Because God himself came to earth in such a humble spirit in form of the tabernacle. That's God's nature. Jesus himself, and that's my third point, Jesus himself, he is the tabernacle. He is the place of God's presence. So the presence of God came to earth through Jesus. And he is the very image of God. And we know what it says in Isaiah 53. That's the nature of brokenness and humility. He was rejected by men, a, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And he took everything upon himself. He bore our pain. He identified with your and my sin. And we considered him stricken by God and humiliated. That's true, isn't it? When people walk through things that are broken in their lives, when they are struggling and keep hold of God, then we actually think that it was God who actually had punished them. Philippians 2, 5-11. He humbled himself, was obedient to death. So Jesus himself is the image of God, full of love and compassion and grace and mercy, and yet full of rejection and, and pain. He is the bridegroom. That's what the word of God said, Chatan. You know, the bridegroom is Jesus, who actually is giving himself. He is joining himself. That's his nature, his heart. You no, know, we don't have to convince him to love us. You don't have to convince him to accept you, to come to you. He loves you. He is Chatan. He wants to come with his presence every day afresh, in every service, wherever you are. The only one who can pre prevent him from coming is us. So Jesus himself carries the nature of God. And the nature of God has nothing to do with pride, but it's humility and brokenness. That's Jesus. Reconciliation, forgiveness. Not separation. But he washed their feet. All of Ma the March of Life movement began when four people were willing. You know, they were Nazi descendants. Their fathers, grandfathers had been part of the SS. One of them was Wolf, Wolf Reiner. And Frank, you were there as well, and some others. They bent down before Holocaust survivors or second gen. We were still in the tent then. I've shared this story so many times all over the world. And they bent down and they were shaking and the survivors didn't know what was happening to them. But that was a place of brokenness and humility and repentance. And the glory of God came down. It was a cloud in that tent. And that was the beginning of the March of Life movement. That's God's nature. That's the key to your miracle and your life. The key to God's presence. That's a broken and humble and servant spirit. And that's what transforms the place where you are. Doesn't matter which desert or wilderness you're in, whether you're in a catastrophe, in a disaster area, whether you're really in a place where you need God's presence, crying out to him. 
But he is transforming this place into a place of his presence. You know, and sometimes we're just so stupid. We would like to trade this place to our chill zones. We want to trade it for our own events. We would like to trade it to just get something for ourselves that will never remain, you know, because we lose things so quickly. But where the presence of God comes with his forgiveness, his mercy, his love, when Jesus comes into your life, he transforms your life 100%. He enters in. And you are no longer searching. You no longer have to run after things. You no longer have to go and get something for yourself because you've got everything in him. All fullness is in him, right? All fullness. And my friends, Christians, believers, no matter whether you are from Toss Church or other churches, unless that is within you, you've got... You, you've lost something once you have started running or seeking things, career, job, or whatever, or even your chill zone. If you are running after things because you think you can get something for yourself, you need the presence of God. You need Him alone, and He comes immediately when He sees such a humble spirit, a servant spirit. And my fourth point here, is the place for the presence of God, the tabernacle, is made visible through the church. Acts 2.42, they meet in the houses and they broke bread, they listened to the sermons and teachings. And my friends, we need to understand, the church in the New Testament is called the bride, the body, his house. It's a place of his calling and vision. It's not a startup venture by some people who had good ideas. Because God gave his redemption, redemptive purposes and he connected them to his church, to the people. Otherwise he'd never have lived together with the disciples. And Peter, once the Holy Spirit came upon him, when God came upon him, his first message would not have been on the church, planting a church. So church is part of his redemptive purpose. It's God's idea, created by him, made in heaven in an excellent way. And it is preceded by grace and mercy and forgiveness. So God has committed to the church by his redemptive purposes. And that's why the tabernacle is called the, the tent of meeting, the place of revelation where his presence dwells. And that's the promise for our cell groups. They meet in the houses. We don't do that because we are stuck in a rut somewhere and they don't do it in other churches, but we do it because God initiated that. But if it's not a place for the presence of God, it's terrible. Who could say amen? But when God's presence is there, it's glorious. Can you also say amen to that? So we need to do something. God's presence comes down, comes down when he finds a broken and humble spirit. And when we are there like raging lions inside, you know, grumbling and and there is a boiling uh, cauldron inside, you need to do something about this because that's not the nature of God. God is seeking a humble and broken spirit 
And you know, he doesn't start with your brother, but with whom? He always starts with me. Tell the person next to you, he starts with me. That's the place. So church is not an option, but it's the fulfillment of his redemptive plans. It's the place of his glory. The atmosphere of heaven is to dwell there and does dwell there. It's the place where heaven and earth meet and touch. Why? You say, okay, Jobs. You are really, really convinced of that. Yes, I am. I'm sure you've only experienced good things. Uh, well, maybe it's similar things to you. I'm sure you've oh you've got such a uh, uh, you've got like uh, pink glasses, you know. You, you've, no, not at all. I never wanted to start a church in Charlotte, neither. We said, oh, you know, that's something so boring. It's so bourgeois. I didn't know what would happen if we started church, but the Lord spoke to us. And he said, it's part of my redemptive purpose. And he spoke to us. He said, are you willing to start a church here so I can make my plans come true? And I believe if there is a place that needs a broken and humble spirit, it's the church. In the church, the leaders for you and me. So tell the person next to you, you and me. Because it's a place of sanctification. Where the Lord keeps working in us over and over again. He, when he starts digging in you, what do you do? Philippians 2 verse 3. Will you give me a few more minutes? My next few points will be really quick. If you try to calculate how long this message would be, I'll be finished soon. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Hello, that's the word of God, right? Colossians 3, verse 12. So as the chosen ones of God put on mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And now this gets us into our final stretch. Somehow the Lord says to us, that we are to do something, right? And you say, yes. Maybe I'll find a Nazi somewhere in my family tree. I'll be really able to repent then. Who would say doesn't quite work that way? All right, we need to do something. You know, we need to run after humility. We need to chase after it. First of all, humility is the willingness to receive the gift of grace. It's our willingness to receive a gift. And for some, that might be really, really difficult, especially here in Swabia. But if you want to give something to someone, you can be sure to get something back. And if you wrap it, you will get a wrapped gift back. Um, hopefully it has a card too. Well, actually it doesn't quite work that way because mercy and grace is for free. He forgives me and I no longer have to fish for things. There was a man of God who once said, no fishing, because we are champions in fishing for guilt out of the sea. You know, maybe you get reconciled with someone and three years later they come to you and say, but back then, and you say, what happened? Three years ago you forgave me. And so tell the person next to you, no fishing. 
Okay. A humble person is willing to learn. Ach nee. Really? Learn? Yes. Learn from your mistakes. Wouldn't that be a good idea? To actually apologize. Yes. To say, hey, can you forgive me? Not just a half-hearted, oh, well, I'm sorry, but you botched up too. Whoever heard any apology like that? That's not an apology. That's nothing to do with humility. But humility is, can you forgive me? Full stop. To receive instruction or advice. That's humility. Well, I, I don't receive any instruction from you because you don't listen to anybody else either. We are champions in pointing at others. But let's ask God to work in our hearts, okay? If that's really true, that God comes to a humble and broken spirit, that's a key for our cell groups. It's a key for your job where things don't work out, wherever you are, your family maybe, where your children are frustrated to see Christian life with you and suddenly there's a humble and unbroken spirit. What do you think would happen? There would be a revolution. Allow people close to you, for instance, in your cell group, to help you and show you where you're wrong. Without immediately getting out your gun and shooting back. Stop your grumbling and complaining. We really can stop it. We can determine to do that. It's not a power unless there's a demon in you that causes you to grumble, then of course you need deliverance. But if you try and doesn't work, maybe you should go and see your counselor because you need deliverance. But grumbling and complaining against God won't go well with you. You can read that in the Bible. And so just test all counselors and all relations around you that make your heart proud. Who would say, come on, just live as you please. Just test all persons around you who want to cause you to simply live an ego-focused life. Oh, you need to think about yourself. Don't, you know, just forget about everything else for the moment. How about asking the Lord not to look at others first and accusing others first and pointing at others first. But Lord, if that's true, that you come when I have a humble and broken spirit, and we saw that at the March of Life conference, if that's true and not just in the face of Jewish life, but in towards one another in the cell groups where we are, what could happen? Oh, revival would break out in Germany. And my friends, I'm not preaching just for us as a church, but I preach to everyone who's listening right now. And I'm slowly coming to an end here. Second Chronicles 7. And when Solomon... I still got six minutes. When Solomon had finished his prayer, fire fell from heaven. And I tell you, that's why we're going for our prayer retreat. Not because the last one was so nice. But we want fire to come. So we saw that last time, how prayer was lit up again. But Lord, we don't say this is a nice instrument, but people, we need prayer in Germany. I tell you, Germany is going down the drain. France just as well. We need prayer as churches. We need prayer. 
There's hardly any prayer movements anymore. And here it says, when he'd finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of God filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. I know of meetings when I was a young Christian and the Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way. The glory of God was such that people were not able to come forward. It's real what we see described here. And then they gave thanks to the Lord and fell on their knees before the glory of God and listened to what they prayed, what the key is. And when my people called by my name, humble themselves that they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And then... Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Lord, this is what I want. Lord, this is what we want. We want you to be able to listen to the prayer offered in this place, to be attentive. We want this wherever we are, at home, in our cell groups, where we are on the road, where we live. We want you to be able to come with your glory. The people around you are not a threat. The people who don't know Jesus are not your enemies, but these are the people, the sheep, that you are to follow up on. These are the people who need Jesus. The works that God has prepared is the people whom the Lord has given you. They wait for your testimony. They wait for your heart. This is not the co Great Commission, the mission charge, basically, but it's God's heart sharing his message. And that leaves us with two more point, points and we'll finish quickly. God's tabernacle is his power in you through the Holy Spirit. The word of God says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? You are designed by God. You are willing to do God's works. You carry Jesus in you in everything we do, his nature, his brokenness, his humility. You carry the vision of the bride of the church in you, and you worship him, and you minister through his living testimony. And our sixth point is the tabernacle is filled by prayer and worship with God's glory. That's your love relationship. And maybe you are here and you say, this love relationship, Jobs, is something I don't have, but I want to have it. Maybe it's the only thing that can keep you back is your heart that says no to Jesus, to God's conditions. But if your hand, heart says yes to brokenness, humility, then it can, you cannot be kept back where you are. But you run to him and say, Lord, this is what I need. I need the living relationship to you. And I can only call you wherever you're from, what you're formed by. It doesn't matter whether you have been formed in an atheist way or humanistic way. I used to be brought up in a very humanistic home. I had no idea about nothing. I only knew that there was a God somewhere, but somehow I knew I had to run to him. I need to run to him. I don't care what people around me say, what my friends say. I don't care what people think. 
It's just about God now. That's a humble spirit, a broken spirit that says, God, I come to you. And also, if you've been living with Jesus for a long time, if you've got your own experiences, if your relationships have broken down, maybe, or maybe you've had negative experiences, and I'm sure there's many, many things that you carry around with you, but I want to tell you one thing. The mercy and love of God never change. You can always run to him. And wherever you come, he comes immediately with his presence. Where we come and have a humble and broken spirit, it's a spirit that repents, that humbles itself, that says, Lord, I'm so sorry, I walked in my own ways, I sought my own way, and that's so easy. But he comes. That's Jesus. And he wants heaven and earth to touch. And you know, right here in this place where you pray and say, Lord, Lord, I don't know how to do it, but here is my life. Here I am with my whole life. I want to walk in your ways, your prepared works. Here is my heart. The Lord looks at you and says, you are my beloved child, my son, my daughter. And let's all stand together and pray. Lord, you're such a wonderful God. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your compassion. Thank you for your wonderful plans that you have for us. And we thank you, Jesus that you came as the most rejected one, that you went to the cross as the Lamb of God. And we thank you for your redemptive plans, that you never stopped coming, that you are running after us. You want to touch us. You want to be together with us. You want to show your love to us. And wherever you are, start giving thanks to Jesus because he's here and he hears your prayer. Exalt him. Give him your prayer, your worship. Pray to him wherever you are. <laughs>